Let me invite you just to remain standing while we read the gospel together. Would you hear this word from John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Then he said, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you've kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, I think Caitlin and Rachel are awesome, don't you all? I, you give them a hand. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was preaching to 10,000 people in 1860. And he had this incredible oratory power over his audiences. But he said about music, that's the war department, because that's where the battle is won and lost. And so music means so much. And this is an awesome church. I mean, did you see all those kids? Wow, that's really impressive. And uh, the way that you embrace them uh, is just a wonderful thing. Now, I'm a dangerous preacher today. This is the last time I'm going to get to preach in a while. So, you know, you all may have to buckle up. Um, actually, I'm going to try and zip through a little faster than I did with, uh, with the early crowd. Because when Greg and I were emailing one another, he was asking me about the text. And I said, uh, really, I want you to read the first half of the book of John. Uh, but he decided that reading that much scripture together uh, probably wouldn't be a good idea. I do want to just call your attention to an oversight of that book. It kind of naturally divides itself uh, quite easily from verse 1 of chapter 1 in John to verse 42 of chapter 11 in John. And in that first half of the book, Jesus does a lot of miraculous things. And he does a very visible public ministry. And so you might title the first half of that book, Jesus' Public Ministry. And then after verse 42 in chapter 11, to the end of the book, Jesus turns his uh, heart and mind toward his disciples, preparing them for what's coming, his ultimate death and then ascension. So 
We want to look this morning just for a few minutes at those seven miracle stories that are found in the first half of the gospel. And this one uh, that we read today is just going to be a jumping off spot. I'm going to be like a lot of Methodist preachers. I'm going to read a text and never return to it and just do what I want to do. All right. Um, such a Jewish mother, Mary is, because he says to her, what's it to us that they've run out of wine? She completely ignores what her son has just said to him as if he, what he said didn't matter. And turns to the servants there and says to them, do whatever he says. Jesus is then forced into action, which is pretty, I'm pretty sure is what her plan was to begin with. Now, I don't know anything at all about wine. I'm, I'm a non-drinker. And uh, even if I was a drinker, I would say I was a non-drinker in front of you because I wouldn't want to get back to the bishop, okay? Uh, so, but it's really the truth. What I do know about the production of wine is that it, in, it has to entail this fermentation process that can only be done through a period of time. And Jesus seems to erase all of that time. As a matter of fact, all seven of these miracle stories that are in John's gospel have that theme of time about them. So the next story is a story about an official in Israel who approaches Jesus and says, my son is ill at home. It's in the fourth chapter of John's gospel. But don't worry, you don't have to show up at my house because I know that you can speak the word and he'll be made well right where he is. And Jesus commends him for his faith and says, make it so just like you said. The official goes home to find his son completely well and he inquires from his servants, when did this happen? And it was at that same hour that he had spoken to Jesus. And so there's that time element again. The third miracle story is in the fifth chapter. It's about a man who is lame, has palsy, can't get around. He's at the pool of Bethesda because there's this whole thing about a troubling of the water at the pool of Bethesda. And as the story goes, whoever is first in the water after the troubling gets healed. And Jesus asked that man, what is it that you want? And he says, I want to be made whole, but I'm always too late to get into the water. And Jesus blesses him that day and makes him whole, tells him to pick up his bed and walk. The next miracle story is in John chapter 6, where Jesus has been teaching all along the Galilean countryside and they're told, we're told that there are 5,000 men in that group, not to mention women and children who are there on the hillside as well. The disciples approach Jesus and say to him, the day is far sp spent and this is a lonely place. Send them home so that they can have something to eat. And Jesus surprises his disciples by saying, you give them something to eat. So they rush out to the local pantry only to come back with a little boy in tow who has some fishes and loaves. You remember the story. Jesus blesses that meal. 
feeds that huge multitude of crowd, of crowd that are gathered there, and they gather up 12 baskets full of fragments. The next miracle story is, falls right on the heels of that one where Jesus has sent his disciples to the other side. He's trying to get them alone for some retreat time, and then he comes after them later on, but he has powers that Jeremy doesn't have because he just walks straight across the lake toward them. The Synoptic Gospels tells that Peter sees him coming in the dark and calls out to him, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you. I'll walk on water with you. And that goes pretty well for a few minutes. And then something happens that makes it too late for Peter. He doubts and he begins to sink. But Jesus comes along to save the day again. Later on in John chapter 9, Jesus is teaching and walking with his disciples and they come to a young man who is blind. And they want to ask the theological question about the problem of evil. Really. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? And Jesus completely ignores that question and says, neither because this was meant to be so that the Son of Man could do His work in this time. And He heals the man. And that causes quite a stir, and there's a whole lot of questions about it. They interrogate the, the man who was born blind and now can see, and his answer is, I don't know much. I do know this. I was once blind, and now I can see. The last miracle story is that story of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. They live in Bethany, and Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. And he waits where he is for another two days before he goes to Bethany. And it's a really interesting interchange. After you take your Sunday afternoon nap, look in John's Gospel, chapter 11, and read that story again. It's a really interesting interchange. Jesus has specifically waited until it appears to be too late. Because Mary and Martha approach him when he gets to Bethany saying, Lord, if you'd been here sooner, our brother would not have died. And Jesus gives the word to roll the stone away from the tomb and they try to stop him. Lord, he's been in there four days. This is going to be a bad result. Notwithstanding, he calls Lazarus, and here he comes, walking out of the tomb. Now what those stories all have in common is this one thing, and that's this. Even when situations look like there is no possibility for them to come out right, it's never too late. When you are walking with Jesus... When you are following his way, it's just never too late. Now, I said to Jeremy earlier, you know, I promised myself when I was a young man, I'm going to be 64 on Monday. A lot of things happen in my life. I'm going to be a, another year older. I'm retiring, all of that kind of thing. I would promised myself that I was never going to preach like an old preacher. But you know, now I'm going to be 64. I sound more and more like an old preacher. And part of the reason is 
is because I still believe that that cross and the sacrificial work done on our behalf on that cross is still good for today. It'll be good tomorrow for people who haven't even come into the world yet but who will bring a sinful bent into the world with them but I tell you that according to the word, they can be blood washed, blood bought, and that they'll be able to stand before the maker and say, look, I'm guilty. I did it all. But the Redeemer has made it right with the world. We have this advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who stands in the gap for us and makes a way for us and who gives us this word that it's never too late now what i loved i loved lots of things about your worship service today and one of the things that i loved the most was pastor greg's prayer life here today is enlivened because he knows you because he's been walking with you. He prayed for people today because he knows what's going on in their life. Friends, I just tell you there's no substitute for that. There are great preachers in the world. We don't have enough pastors. And he's really being one to you. And so I'm, I'm blessed to be here and be a witness as part of that process. And while I come and try to share something about the home, I, I'm a glorified fundraiser, you all know that. I ask people for money, and I just assume that they want to do it. Uh, you know, you've heard, heard that old adage, it's a really cold day outside, it's so cold, I saw an attorney with his hands in his own pockets. Well, you know, I, I've been that same way. I, if you're an attorney here today, there's all kinds of bad preacher stories out there, and you can tell them all on me, so. <clears throat> Part of the frustration that I have when I come to speak is that I'm assuming that you come here today, you've invested this time here today because Pastor Greg or Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy is going to share a word from God's word with you. And I want that to be true for me as well. And I, but I haven't had the benefit that Pastor Greg has had. I, I haven't walked with you enough, but I do know this. There's liable to be some people in this room who've given up on some things because they don't ever believe that it can be any different than it is today. Maybe there's a broken relationship somewhere that you think can't be salvaged. Maybe there's something that you've just been struggling with for so long that you've given up that this is going to be the way that it is until I'm gone. But I, I'm here to tell you, Jesus says it's not too late. He reaches out and gives us the opportunity to make it new. I think that folks think that about the work that we do with youth. You know, statistically, I'm told that by the time, from the time that I was born, 
till I was two years old. I learned more in those two years than I was going to learn for the rest of my life. And I, I, I can see that there's truth in that. But that doesn't mean because the kids that I serve, teenagers that they are, they've been through a lot of hurt. They've been broken. They've been abused. And so sometimes it's easy for us to think that, well, the die's been cast. There's no, there's no way that they can change. But I promise you, I've seen enough of that change go on. That's what's kept me getting up and going to work for the last 12 years at the Methodist home and for 38 years in the annual conference. These youth have been such an inspiration and a joy to me. We moved into our new facility in, in October of uh, 2017, and we've been doing a lot of tours. I'm so glad that your Methodist women had the opportunity to come and see our new facility. One of the things that they've been doing in cooperation with the school system, our kids are educated on our campus. We have a partnership with Jessamine County School Systems. They provide uh, teachers and a principal. But they said, Reverend Coy, when you come around and you're doing one of the tours, sometimes, you know, it's busy. I don't want to interrupt the classroom. And so what they decided to do, because they wanted to give our kids the education and the curriculum that they needed, but they also wanted to help them find their voice in front of people. And so each week they name ambassadors from the classroom that if we're doing a tour, the ambassadors come out and talk to us. And sometimes they'll say, what's going on in the classroom cannot be interrupted, and so we can't let you in there today. But they'll answer some questions. I was doing one of those tours not too long ago, and they sent these two young women out. And one of the people in the tour turned to one of the girls there. I'm guessing she was 15 or 16. Young African-American, about 5'8", tall, pretty girl. Somebody said to her, what's the best thing about being in this school? And she said, I've been interrupted in my educational process because I've been in a bunch of different placements. And when I came to the Methodist home, I was a freshman because I'm behind in my work. But because I've been able to, walk, to work at my own pace and do credit recovery, they've got all kinds of technology and everything that they use. I now have enough credits that I'm a senior. And it was the way she said it. It was like, I now have something that can never be taken away from me. Well, friends, you've been a part of that work. You've supported it, your faithfulness, your... Your participation in that fifth Sunday offering has helped make that possible. And so if you don't remember anything else I said today, hear me say thank you for your generosity and for your heart. Recently, I, I got an email. Um, Greg asked me what's the first thing that I was going to do. And I told him, I go, I'm going to the gym because my doctor has no sense of humor. You know, <laughs> uh, you know. Randy, get on the scale. Come on, doc, just give me the fat speech and let's go. So I'm going to try and get in shape. I'm going to go back to the gym. But one of the things that I'm not going to do in retirement is answer email. So don't email me. 
By the way, I'm not going to trust you enough to give you a chance to email you. I'm not telling you what my email address is. Because my, if I believed in a doctrine of purgatory, I believe that the way out of purgatory would be having to answer and send email for days upon days until you could finally get out. But I got an email the other day, somebody I didn't recognize. I'm scrolling through. Catherine is her name. So I take a chance and open the email. Dear Reverend Coy, I live in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and I see on your website that you have a new facility. I used to be a resident at the Methodist home. I'm going to be in your area in July. I wanted to know if it's possible to come by for a tour. Signed, Catherine Patterson, Ph.D., Catherine, can I call you? I typed in my reply. She responded by saying, yes, you can. And so I called Catherine Patterson, PhD, back, talked to her for an hour and a half. She's a chair of a doctoral program at Regent Regency, no, Regent University in Virginia Beach. It's a Christian school. And the department that she chairs is called Servant Leadership. She said to me, I'm responsible for 500 doctoral students all around the world. They're on every continent in the world except Antarctica. And if I could figure Antarctica out, I'd have some students there. She and her twin sister came to the Methodist home in the early 70s. They were born to a 16-year-old mother who couldn't care for them, who had, they had a grandmother who happened to be in the Methodist church in Harlan, Kentucky. And the grandmother who couldn't care for these two girls either brought them to the Methodist home. They stayed there seven years. What Catherine said to me was, I didn't know it at the time because I didn't have language at the age of seven years old, but the, but the youth staff at the Methodist home and the teachers at Pisgah Elementary School were planting the seed in me and showed me what servant leadership looked like. Now here's what I know. She's going to live out the rest of her life and touch a lot of people who are going to touch a lot of people who are going to touch more people. And her ministry is going to go all the way around the world. And you helped make it possible. Only the fullness of the kingdom will fully disclose what that one touch has done. And I believe again that it's not too late to do that for someone else. One of my favorite stories is about a man named James Cash. He was in the mercantile business. He had the Golden Rule stores. He owned 1,400 of them in Wyoming. And he was so successful uh, in the early 20s that 
He was making $1.5 million every year. Today, that'd be like $150 million annually. And everything was going along great until the Great Depression came along and it wiped out all of his stores and all of his wealth. He was in a public speaking engagement in Battle Creek, Michigan, and he began to feel ill and he had this terrible rash break out. They discovered later on that it was shingles and he was in such a state of depression because of his current situation. He consulted with an old friend who happened to be a, a medical doctor and he recommended that he get into the hospital and so his doctor friend put him in the sanitarium there in Battle Creek. He felt so terrible, his depression was so real that he wrote notes to all of his family and friends and he believed that he was gonna lay down that night in that hospital and die. He said later on that when he awakened the next day, he was surprised to be able to see the light of another day. He walked from his room down to the first floor and as he got to the first floor, of that hospital, he heard music coming from the local chapel. And that music was this. <laughs> <laughs> 